2: The New Statesman.
1: Hi, I'm Anoush.
0: I'm Harry. I'm Freddie. And I'm Rachel.
1: And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss the fallout from Tory party conference so far, and you ask us will benefits be cut? So I have all of our lobby team down the line from Tory Conference. Um, I hope you're eating enough vegetables and staying hydrated, guys.
2: I've just resorted to Barocca, I must say.
1: Just pack those vitamins in. (laughs) Yeah. I I
0: had biscuits for breakfast with coffee.
1: (laughs) Oh, Rachel. (laughs) Conference has taken you. (laughs) So how is it? I mean, I've been watching it on the telly and it just looks like utter chaos from where I'm sitting. I mean, does it feel like that from within the, from on the ground, on the front line? There's just like a a a general feeling of
0: resignation and a lack of discipline. It doesn't feel especially chaotic, I would say, but there's obviously a lot of division. You have sort of ministers openly admitting that they're probably not likely to be in power in the next 18 months. You have Michael Gove dropping bombs on Liz Truss at every chance he gets. It feels more like what a Labour Party conference has been like for the last last few years. Yeah, I think people feel resigned if it's to be described as chaotic. It's because they just they don't feel like they're being guided towards any kind of possible victory at the minute. It feels like people have given up a little bit
3: here.
1: Okay, Harry and Freddie, do you have the same assessment of the atmosphere?
3: Yeah, I think it's telling that Freddie and I were yesterday talking to a Tory MP who I had never met before. And within 30 seconds or so, we were talking about who should succeed at its trust. Hmm. So... That's not exactly an encouraging place for the Prime Minister to be in. The other interesting thing to say is that so many MPs just aren't here, so the the conference has a has a ghostly feel to it
0: that's that's right, yeah. when I was up in Kwarteng's speech yesterday with uh, with Freddie, we remarked on how just how few MPs there were. yeah, there are hardly any.
1: Well, well, we'll get on to Kwasi Kwarteng's speech, but first of all, Harry and Freddie, I want to ask you: Who was that um, MP who you were speaking to, suggesting to succeed
3: Liz Truss? Well, Freddie can talk more about this, but I think the really interesting thing is that the Boris Johnson is is, is cropping up as a name, mm. and so I think he's ten to one at the moment. The people I'm speaking to think he's much more likely to return than that, and they think that Rishi Sunak suffers from having been explicitly rejected by the membership, whereas. Boris, despite being thrown out by MPs, never has been rejected by the membership or by the electorate. So, you know, is this the case? It's, it is it is hard to see who could replace her. I think you can whittle it down to Rishi Boris, Ben Wallace, but does he really want to be prime minister? He chose not to run in the summer. And then is it a fringe candidate like a Michael Gove or Kevin Ben Yeah, I, I
2: think- spoke to one Rishi Sunak supporter about two weeks ago and I put it in a morning call then and they described Boris Johnson as the off-the-shelf candidate he's seen as a candidate which would be much more easy just to put in rather than going through the rigmarole of another uh, leadership election and that came from as I said Rishi Sunak supporter. so it just speaks to the fact that for many MPs Rishi Sunak is no longer one of the key here. I mean of course that might change but here at conference I think there is a sense that uh, they are looking around the room and uh, Rishi Sunak isn't here he's in Yorkshire
1: Right. Okay. And you said it. It was a ghost-like atmosphere. I suppose the spirit of Boris Johnson seems to be haunting the conference most of all. But the thing that's coming across most, sort of, in the general coverage, I was looking at the sort of front pages this morning and have been watching six o'clock and ten o'clock news. Is these U-turns seem to be coming thick and fast. Kwasi Kwarteng's speech, where he announced that the mini-budget had caused a little turbulence and then there's some laughter that comes from the hall when he says that, which comes across on screen as incredibly jarring, even if sort of in the context of the cut and thrust of the conference hall, it made sense. So I think that that was a bit of a mistake. Also, he walked very slowly onto the stage and it contrasted, I thought, with the with the slogan, which is getting Britain moving. I mean, I don't know why he was dragging his feet so much. I think maybe he was trying to look calm. I don't know if you yeah, noticed was- that from in the hall.
2: Yeah, I thought it was a strange approach to the podium. He sort of <laughs> sauntered with this jaunty confidence and then his delivery was exceptionally stunted and quite nervous. So, I mean, I, I wrote about this last night. His speech was ribbon with contradictions. I mean, the presentation was only, only the start of it.
1: Yeah, why don't you tell me a bit about what struck you from that speech? Because your piece picked up on this idea that he was sort of still doing that old Tory trick of condemning the years of, of Labour government, but then was suggesting that there'd been very little growth. And actually, I think he used the phrase managed decline or something like that about the last 12 years.
2: Yeah, so he tried to frame it as if the Tories came in in 2010, saved the country from uh, an era of decline under new Labour. But then also his mini budget was designed to save the country from an era of decline. So which was it? I mean, it's not clear. Um, And it speaks to one of the problems that the government have at the moment is How connected are they with the previous 12 years of government if they're trying to pursue something as they see it? It's completely new. Well, I mean, most people recognise that they have been in power for a long time now and you do have to hold them to account for some of the problems that they are saying they want to solve, such as low growth and low productivity.
1: And this U-turn on the removal of the 45p top rate of tax and also a U-turn in order to bring forward the uh, the fiscal plan, the announcement of this medium term fiscal plan with the costings and the OBR and everything. These seem to completely undermine this idea of Liz Truss's leadership as sort of move fast and break things, bulldozing, I think she used the phrase bulldozing herself, you know, through the opponents who stand in the way of the things that she wanted to do. Is their authority undermined by the fact that they've had to make these U-turns or is is it a return to sort of pragmatic politics that might calm the markets and might save their skin?
2: Just on the laughter thing as well, I think it spoke to the same point. There was laughter in the conference hall, which when you were there felt like it was undermining the Chancellor's authority. And the same thing happens with the U-turn. As soon as the government U-turns, the rebels sense that they can overpower the government and their Mm. power and the other balls in their their core, they can, when we get back to Parliament, dictate what the government do. And I completely think we can and quasi-quoting authority.
1: That's interesting because the laughter on screen came across as sort of, I, you know, I hate the stereotype, but you know, Tories honking about the idea that the economy <laughs> is is in meltdown, which you know, for people whose mortgage rates have shot up, is not a great look. And I think I wonder if some of the laughter is just
0: part of this whole feeling of detachment, because I think the Conservatives for a long time have been getting away with any kind of big polling damage to, to a lot of their positions when it comes to Brexit, when it comes to a lot of other things. They often just stayed in the same place in the polls. And I think this last week seems to have come as quite a shock to them. There is this feeling of detachment where they're just sort of, I don't know if it's like nervous laughter or whatever. But yeah, I think I think Liz Truss's authority is completely undermined. But I think there's what there's another strand that I would kind of like, that's been running through conference that I think is worth kind of highlighting. A lot of those who are happy for their disagreement with Liz, Liz Truss to be out there are kind of representing a lot of blue wall kind of seats where there's this like Lib Dem threat and I think that's that's started to make a lot of Conservative MPs feel quite uncomfortable about you know whether they're going to hang on to their seat or not and I think they will be quite happy for people to look at the Conservative Party and see that it's not just Liz Truss's party that there's also a section of it that is the more reasonable Conservatives and that they're part of that you know I think they kind of want that to be known because they want to hang off their seats. <laughs>
3: right. Just on that, and this, I thought John Rental put it well yesterday. He said the Rishi Sunak party has used its veto in Parliament to prevent the 45p cut. And I think there <laughs> is some truth to that. Liz Truss can pass the budget that Michael Gove and Rishi Sunak and other Tories allow her to pass. And she's someone who only you know three in 10 MPs chose over Rishi and, and, and Penny Morden. So she never had much authority and she has less than ever they're down 25 points in the polls it's not clear what she has the power to do and it is difficult to see how they remove her in the next little while because you know it's always a complicated and and torturous process but it's very difficult to see how she governs certainly as she was planning to do
0: i also think it's interesting that penny mordaunt this morning came out against cuts to um welfare you know i mean that's kind of that's cabinet authority breaking down as well i mean and this, it's extraordinary for a, a prime minister that's been in power like not even a month yet, I don't think.
2: Yeah, could I could I push back on um, that slightly, Harry? I'm not sure or I don't characterize it as a Rishi Sunak rebellion. I mean it's coming from across the party, we're seeing it from Esther McVay, from Michael Go, from cabinet members. It doesn't seem like a rebellion that's purely oriented around fiscal responsibility, for instance. We had that one we'll bring the to event yesterday. Uh, all on Sunday, and Michael Gove was there talking about social capitalism, how we need to return to some of the communitarian feelings or ideas that were latent in 2019. So it's also from the Boris Johnson sector. We so, saw um, the Dean Doris come out and basically call for a general election if this trust wanted to move away from the 2019 manifesto. So it does seem to be coming across the party.
1: We are going to talk about the current live row over the idea of not uprating benefits with inflation on the second half of the podcast. But in general, I just want to get your, your feeling of what happens next. You know, is it is it going to be battle after battle over... Big radical things that Liz Truss wanted to do. Planning reform is a classic example where she is likely to hit up against it. opposition from many parts of the party, including especially that blue wall contingent, Rachel, that you mentioned. Have her plans for government been ruined, basically? She's she's conceded these U-turns. There's so many rebels. Is there nowhere for her to turn in terms of trying to commit to her agenda?
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't
1: see where she goes
0: next. I don't see what she can offer All of the groups that are are sceptical about her leadership now and are quite open about it, and there is this bit of a free-for-all going on, really. And I think when she gets back to Parliament, I don't know how she holds that together. I know she kind of, over the 45p tax rate, she pulled together a a call with senior Conservatives and they kind of all (laughs) just told her what they think. One of the sort of rebel ringleaders was Michael Gove. And when you think about the people who didn't support Liz Truss, a lot of them are former whips who know just how to pull together in, in Parliament if she puts forward something else that's controversial. In terms of what happens next, I mean, there there are two schools of thought, it seems, in in the party over kind of if she is to be if she's to be replaced, what kind of leader would they want? Would they want someone who's seen as a, a safe pair of hands and a good campaigner who'll help as many of the MPs to hold their seats as possible. So, you know, someone who's in the former cabinet, maybe someone like Grant Shapps, maybe someone like Michael Gove, you know, who the party feels that they can rely on, or are they gonna kind of just admit that they're moving on to thinking about how they operate in opposition and would it be a next-generation leader? Would it be someone like Kemi Badenoch? I think that's where thoughts are starting to turn to. But in terms of what she does in Parliament, I mean, she's she's boxed into a corner. She's boxed herself into a corner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. From the
0: New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Edward Dox on the death of Boris the Clown.
1: When did the booing start? He was never exactly sure.
0: A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk.
3: One presenter told me that producers had taken to booking their own parents.
0: May Robson on why women's football
2: is the more beautiful game. Like most of the England squad, the Euro 2022 captain, Leah Williamson, can't afford not to have a plan B. Ease into the
0: weekend with our audio long reads published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman.
1: Now it's time for a section we like to call
3: You ask us. us.
1: <laughs> Come on Harry, you don't ask- leave us hanging.
3: Sorry, I was on I was on mute. You ask us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> excuses, excuses. So we've got a question today. Will benefits be cut? So, I mean, that's the big question of the day. It seems like there's another row around the bend and actually is already emerging. Rachel, you mentioned Penny Morden, a member of Liz Truss's cabinet, leader of the House of Commons, saying benefits should rise in line with inflation. But Liz Truss has repeatedly ruled out the idea that she might cut them in real terms. And then you've got a number of former Work and pension secretaries, Esther McVeigh, Damian Green coming out against it. Chloe Smith, the actual work and pension secretary, has said these are very anxious times for people. We know that people are struggling with some of the costs that are rising. That's why protecting the most vulnerable is a vital priority for me. So it doesn't sound like she's keen either. What uh, impression do you get from the people that you're talking to at conference about where this policy is headed?
0: I think there's just a lot of concern that that, that would be the direction the where she would take things. And I think there's so much focus on the cost of living now that it's incredibly difficult politically for her to go down this this route where she wouldn't uprate benefits. And as I think Freddie was alluding to earlier, opposition to this is also right across the party. There's lots of big figures that have come out against it, including some in her own cabinet. So I don't see currently how she's able to to push on with that, yeah, it's it's incredibly difficult. It's something Rishi Sunak had already committed to. You know, when he got a lot of criticism for cutting the twenty pound a week uplift, this was the if the sweetener, if you like, if there's a, you can use a word like that to describe it. It's this was how it was going to be resolved. There was it, benefits were then going to be uprated in line with inflation when it came to later in the year, and to roll back on that when the focus is entirely on the cost of living. I just don't see how she, she manages to do it.
1: Well, that's something that David Gawk, another former Tory Work and Pension Secretary, told us on the last episode of the podcast. I mean, he said that contrast to cut benefits at this time while also apparently cutting the taxes of the highest earning. You really don't have to be someone on the hard left to think that that is a pretty ghastly combination. So that's, you know, quite strong words from him, though he's not in the party anymore. But there does seem to be a sense different, I think, from back in September last year, when some Tory MPs, some of the ones that we've mentioned, like Damien Green, were trying to oppose the removal of the £20 a week universal credit uplift. There is a sense that they are going to be able to oppose it, that it won't be possible for Liz Trust to go ahead with a real terms cut. And actually, I remember speaking to Damien Green last September about that £20 a week cut. And back then he told me, you know, he was against it, but he told me MPs had run out of road in terms of trying to oppose it. Now he's on Radio 4 saying saying that it's very unlikely that Liz Truss will get it through. So it seems to me that even if she wanted to go ahead with this as a way to try and save some money, it's not going to happen. But it's also a bad look, isn't it? I mean, this this whole idea that channeling money towards the rich and then taking away from the poor, I mean, that is redistributive, as Keir Starmer joked in his Labour conference speech. It's just redistributing from the poor to the wealthy, Harry.
3: (laughs) Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. And there are actually quite a lot of Tories who would like to change the welfare budget, but they recognize that this trust has made it impossible for them to do so and impossible for her to do so. And it's just a case study in a weakness, this entire government and how not to go about things. Because if you if you alienate people and you create a narrative around you that makes it hard for you to do the things you want to do. That's not strength. That's what that's what she thought she was coming in to be, right? She she wanted to be the strong leader who got things done. But strength isn't something that happens through proclamation. You have to, you know, win people over, you have to lay the ground for your plans. That's just spent so long dealing with people she didn't want to deal with in the 80s before she could really carry out her revolution. And trust seems to have thought you could have done it in a few weeks, even though lots of your party don't agree with you.
1: Yeah, well, as you and I have actually written about, Harry, changing the benefit system was the great prize for some of these Tory MPs who are now in power. Kwasi Kwarteng's been talking about it since he became an MP. You know, this idea of cash freeze of benefits, which uh, that group of free enterprise MPs actually got through in the 2012 budget. And I remember him boasting about it to me in that 2013 interview that I did with him in my last job. You know, this is something that they've been thinking about for a long time, you know, throwing around the idea that benefits should be repayable loans, for example. So once people get jobs, they have to start paying back the benefits that they've claimed. So obviously this was this was one of the great prizes of this group of sort of libertarian thinkers. But like you said, maybe they'd been rolling the pitch for it in think tank meetings and fringe events at Tory conferences past. But they hadn't been with their own MPs, especially not those who represent constituents that they can see are struggling at, at this moment. There just doesn't seem to be very much political pragmatism a, a, among this this bunch who are now in charge.
3: Just to say, to your point, you, you can't pair the two things. That's the key thing. If you want to do something as politically toxic as, as cutting the welfare oh, budget, you certainly can't budget. do it while cutting taxes for the rich.
2: Yeah, I think it speaks to a broader po- problem for the government. They said that they want to cut taxes without cutting public spending. And that was all predicated on the fact that the shortfall would be uh, filled with gross and we're sort of seeing in the past few days a recognition that they are going to have to set out how they're going to cut public spending. And it just mm. speaks to the fallacy that the whole plan was originally founded on. And I mean, I don't think we've acknowledged enough how much of a mission of failure it would be for the government to now go about uh, cutting public spending. When in the leadership campaign and when the first uh, plans were briefed, it was said that we didn't need to worry about that because growth would pay for it all.
0: Indeed, I mean, I mean, it, I think the questions will turn now to just like, well, if she's not able to go down that route, what does she cut? You know, does she does she then move? Does she then start to think about big infrastructure projects, which are part of her plan for growth? You know, it's I don't know what she starts to look at, and the, obviously the thing that would be popular along a lot of a lot of conservative thinkers would be to look at the welfare budget, which is one of the biggest budgets. But where now does she turn if she is going to make cuts?
1: Yes, well, I was speaking to someone about this. About I'm doing a piece um, about the prospect of austerity 2.0, round two of the cuts, and what I'm hearing is that it's more palatable for them to cut, like you said, big infrastructure projects, rather than direct cuts on the number of nurses or other policies that would, of course, seem just completely out of touch and unpalatable to the public. But of course, there's a dual problem with that. First of all, it's chucking out the levelling up agenda, which a lot of these uh, new constituencies that voted for the Conservatives in 2019 were basing their support on. And there may be a sense of betrayal if those projects get scaled back. And secondly, the whole idea was for growth, right? Their great aim is to bring growth back into the economy. And you can't do that unless you invest in infrastructure and you start cutting back infrastructure projects. And we did I did have a question that I wanted to mention from a listener called Richard who mentioned Jake Berry. Who is the party chairman now? His comments that people know that when their fuel bills arrive, they can either cut their consumption or get a higher salary, go out there and get a job. That's the approach the government is taking. It just seems like there is a disconnect between how people are actually living and what Conservative MPs who are advocating for people to just sort of deal with the cost of living crisis themselves believe. I mean, forty percent of people on Universal Credit are actually in work, so it's not really a problem that people aren't working. It's a problem that work isn't paying, and there seems to just be this sort of lack of understanding of that economic reality. Yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely right. And I would I would say
0: like as just a broader point about Liz Truss I think she kind of doesn't have a lot of credit in the bank with the public either yet when you talk about that disparity between like what people are getting paid and what the government thinks they should be able to do that's obvious to anybody who's like living and working in in the economy that we have. But I think she's sort of, she's been Prime Minister when, for example, the the Queen died. She's had like a number of speeches and interviews. And I I think what she's failed to do so far is like establish any kind of emotional connection with voters. So I think they're going to hear things like this and just find it quite cold and very difficult to understand because she hasn't worked to kind of just build a connection with the public yet. And considering what the country's been through, you'd kind of think that she would have managed that by now. And... I can't see that she has. I don't know if other people feel the same, but there's not that. You could criticise Boris Johnson for all kinds of things, but he did have an emotional connection with voters and was able to take them with him. And uh, I just don't think Liz Truss has demonstrated that she has that
1: yet. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear from Harry and Freddie how you feel about Liz Truss's presentational style because in the interviews that she's done, I have noticed that distinct lack of emotional intelligence even when she's acknowledging that people are struggling or she's saying this new thing that they keep saying now, we're listening, we get it.
3: I think Liz Truss is by far the worst communicator we've ever had in number 10. I mean, I find it hard to take her seriously. As our Prime Minister, be blunt, she she just struggles to put sentences together and it's a low bar for a public figure to do that. Um, I don't think she has any idea what she believes, really. I think what she's believed ha- has gone up and down, depending on the political winds. I don't think she can talk at length about any subject. And you don't get... You know, we were Rachel and Freddie and I were all in the room with Michael Gove yesterday, listening to a, a fringe event he was doing on housing. And, you know, Freddie's going to criticise me for being too complimentary of Gove here. But you, you do get the sense when you're in a room with him that he could talk about housing for five hours, and then he could probably talk about environment policy for five hours. And and that's what, you know, someone like a Ken Clark or, or many years ago, a Churchill, when he was a minister in the 20s, they were famed for being able to do. And I think the prime minister should be the most able minister or, or certainly not the least able minister. And I think the problem with trust is you don't get the sense that she does know much about what she's talking about.
1: Harry, I just wish for once you'd say what you really feel on the New Standard Podcast. That's <laughs> going to say something similar. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie, what do, you, what do you make of her style?
2: Her style is lacking in charisma and coherence, I think, as Harry said. And as Rachel mentioned, it's important to compare her to Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson had this optimistic boosterism which gave him a currency and cover for all of the mess-ups of his government. So Liz Truss doesn't have that or she doesn't have that style on her side and that only makes her mistakes and her flaws more perceptible.
1: All right. Well, I'll let you get back to conference where you can hopefully watch more of that famous presentational style tomorrow <laughs> in her speech. Um, but thanks so much for taking the time. I know you're on incredibly busy schedules, so it's good to hear from you all and drink some water. <laughs> thanks you. <so> <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Harry Lambert, Freddie Hayward, and Rachel Wearmouth. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe. And if you want to email in a question, go to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk.